This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi there, and welcome to New Books in South Asian Studies. I'm your host, Ian Cook, and today we're talking about Jalad, Death Squads and State Terror in South Asia by Tasneem Cahill. The book is published by Pluto Press. Tasneem is an exiled Bangladeshi journalist who previously worked for the Daily Star in Bangladesh and was a consultant for Human Rights Watch. He is currently editor and publisher of Independent World Report. The book is about state executioners and all their various guises, and these are explored in all their horrific detail from the Rapid Action Battalion of Bangladesh to the so-called Men in White Vans in Sri Lanka. And in doing so, the book interrogates both the brutal specificities of state agents as well as the underlying themes that cross-cut state terror in the region. The book is strong, brave and relentless, and I think a real important and timely contribution. I had the pleasure of speaking with Tasneem just a few moments before. Okay, so thanks so much for coming on the podcast. So we're here to talk today about your book, Jalad, and this explores death squads and state terror across different South Asian countries. So let's jump straight to the heart of your analysis. My first question is, what are the common features of state terror in the region that allow you to bring bring them together in one book? Oh, thank you for uh, having me and uh, giving me the opportunity to talk about my book. Um, uh, first of all, I'd like to note that the actual meaning of uh, Jallat is a word common in uh, Bengali, Urdu and Hindi, and I'm told some other languages. Uh, it means the executioner or, or, or hangman. So in this book, I'm trying to discuss uh, state terror in South Asia by looking at this figure of the Jallad, uh, the executioner. And this figure, of course, is a stand-in for the death squads that roam the streets of the subcontinent. Uh, we have the Rapid Action Battalion in Bangladesh. Then we have the Encounter Specialist in India. Uh, in Nepal, uh, there were units of the Royal Nepalese Army. Uh, in Pakistan, we have different paramilitary units and security agencies. In, in Sri Lanka, uh, during and after the civil war, there were uh, white van death squads. So in Jalad, I look at these different death squads to study three features of state terror, or I, I, I call them pillars of state terror. So pillar number one is what I call the black laws. And here I'm borrowing from Gandhi. Uh, These are laws that, in effect, impose a state of exception or a state of emergency, 
whenever and wherever the post-colonial state is facing some kind of trouble or some kind of crisis. Uh, now, this state of exception, and uh, Agamben has has written a brilliant book about it. I'm sure you know of that. Uh, has has two functions. Number one is robbing some people, and these are the people who are usually called the enemies of the state or the society or terrorists or criminals. Uh, these people are robbed of their fundamental human rights. Uh, they are dehumanized. Uh, so that they can be abducted, tortured, and executed. Number two is giving extraordinary powers to armed agents of the state, who I call uh, specialists on violence. And here I'm borrowing from Harold Laswell. Uh, On the one hand, these specialists on violence are given extraordinary powers and uh, deployed in in, in the service of internal wars or dirty wars. And on the other hand, they're given immunity from prosecution. So black laws uh, are are tools that are used by these countries uh, to impose uh, what I call the legal illegal, this this order of state error. Then pillar number two is this group I already mentioned, the, the specialists on violence. These are military and paramilitary commanders who are seen uh, as the saviors of the states, the, the, the heroes who are saving the state from, uh, I don't know, armed insurgents and dissidents and criminals and whatever. And the state takes very good care of them through colossal military budgets and then there's something called Milbas. It's, it was a term coined by uh, Aisha Siddiqua. And, and this, this is a separate military economy, uh, which we can be seen in, in Pakistan, in Bangladesh, in Sri Lanka. We see the army uh, becoming an independent economic uh, actor in, in, in the state, uh, buying banks and airlines and everything, smaller, big businesses. Uh, number three is uh, what I call the international system of state error. And, and this is a play on uh, the international system of uh, human rights or international human rights system. What I, I argue here that the international human rights system has ter- terribly failed. Uh, and, 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 and this international network of different countries, different sponsored countries and different client countries are actually thriving. And they have sort of this um, exchange uh, in, in, in tools of terror, technologies of terror, uh, technologies of torture and tools of torture and execution and so on and so forth. So these are, these are the three <clears throat> excuse me, features I try to look at very closely in, in, in this book. Thank you. And these three pillars will be, yeah, they'll strongly come out, I think, in our discussion when we start to turn to the different case studies. But before moving on to, to speak about those chapters in more detail, could you please tell us a little bit about yourself and your motivation for writing the book? Um, I, I am a journalist currently based in Sweden, and here I uh, edit a 
global journal of uh, human rights and uh, politics. It's called Independent World Report. Uh, we uh, are currently out of print, but we are relaunching in April. Uh, I'm, I am originally from Bangladesh, uh, where I worked for the Daily Star newspaper and uh, was an editor with the Forum magazine. And uh, I was also working for Human Rights Watch uh, there. Uh, I was investigating incidents of uh, torture and extrajudicial executions by this. That's what I cover in this book also, uh, the Rapid Action Battalion. And uh, my, my investigation uh, led to my own uh, detention and torture at the hands of uh, the Bangladeshi Military Intelligence Agency. And then I had to leave the country and, and, and uh, seek asylum in Sweden, uh, where I, I'm a citizen right now. And uh, it, it was in Sweden I started to look at uh, other South Asian countries, Nepal, for example. I worked with the Dog and Marshall Foundation, and that was the first time uh, we looked at the participation of human rights abusers from Bangladesh, Pakistan, Nepal. Uh, and how these people who uh, torture and execute people in their own countries end up as uh, peacekeepers in, I don't know, uh, Africa or uh, Latin America, places like that. Yes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Thank you. So let's let's move on to the, the first of the case studies that you touch on in your book, and this is Bangladesh. And what was surprising to, to me, not knowing so much about the country was just was just how habitual and deep-rooted state violence has been right since the country's formation. So my question here is, like, why do you think the Bangladeshi state so frequently employs groups to, to torture and, and also kill its opponents? Uh, okay, here I have a confession to make, and uh, that is I have been reporting about torture and execution in Bangladesh, I think, since 2003. Uh, or, or, or four. Uh, but I, I, I myself, I was really surprised to, like when I was writing that chapter, I myself was very surprised to see how uh, deeply rooted uh, this is. And I think, I mean, one way of answering the question is probably the military and political leaders of Bangladesh are really good students. I mean, they studied uh, the, or, or they learned from their predecessors very well. I mean, uh, in, in, in Bangladesh, as, as I, I, I note in the chapter, um, you had uh, a genocide in, in erstwhile East Pakistan, which was carried out by the Pakistan army, uh, which also deployed the first death squad in, in, in the history of post-colonial South Asia. It's called uh, Al-Badr. Uh, after that, uh, the, the new ruler of Bangladesh, Sheikh Mujibur Rahman, the leader of the Bangladeshi independence movement, he basically copied the whole model of Al-Badr and, and created a new death squad. Uh, it was called the Rocky Bahini. And uh, then when he was assassinated uh, in 1975, the military rulers who came in after him, they basically copied uh, 
the models of state terror from Pakistan. Uh, and, and these people were once members of the Pakistan army and, and, and in independent Bangladesh, they became the saviors of Bangladesh. So we had Zia Rahman who copied the model of Pakistani intelligence agencies and created DGFI, the military intelligence agency in Bangladesh. And, and uh, these people also, these people also started their first uh, uh, dirty war in the Chittagong Hill Tracks. And what happened in Chittagong Hill Tracks was pretty much modeled after what happened in, in East Pakistan, the larger East Pakistan, or, or, or now what, what we know as Bangladesh. So the, the, these, these leaders are, I will say, very good learners, very good students. And they have, they have inherited the machinery of state terror and then they have perfected it. And now we have a new government of uh, Sheikh Hasina on Aumil League. I mean, when, when she was the opposition le leader, I, I know I, I spoke with her personally and she was vehemently opposed to uh, rapid action battalion and, and the extrajudicial executions that were taking place. Uh, now, when she became the prime minister, since then, she is actually using the same organization, the same death squad against her political opponents and, and, and giving it more powers. And uh, so, answer to your question, Bangladeshi leaders are very good students. <laughs> not, not, of the, not of the right subjects, though. <laughs> <laughs> well put. Very well put. So um, let's move on now to talk about India. Now, is anyone familiar with India as a probably very different understanding of the word encounter, especially you know, how, it's, how it's used in India is quite different from other parts of the world. But for those who are not familiar with this euphemism, what does encounter often mean in the Indian context? And for what end has the Indian state put encounters to use? Encounter is just a euphemism for extrajudicial execution. This is how it, 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 it takes place usually. I mean, someone is abducted and then that person is taken to a secret uh, facility or, or maybe not taken to a secret facility. Uh, that person is tortured and often tortured to death or, or executed short point blank. And that, that and, and after after everything is over, uh, the paramilitary unit or the police just says, "Well, this person died in an encounter," and everyone in India, uh, and everyone also also I mean, encounter is also used. This word is also used in Pakistan. So everyone in India and Pakistan and uh, maybe in Bangladesh, everyone knows that this is. This is uh, extrajudicial execution we are talking about. Um, and uh, against whom this is used? I mean, uh, in, in, in the peripheries of India, uh, in Kashmir, for example, or in the northeastern states or in um, central India, in the, in the Red Corridor, where there is a, a small war going on between the Maoists and the Indian state. Uh, encounter is used against the real or perceived enemies of the state, the rebels and insurgents. Uh, and in Indian metropolises, uh, in places like Delhi and Mumbai, this is used against the lumpen proletariat, the, the criminals, the crooks and the gangsters who are um, 
threatening the socioeconomic security of the metropolis. So these are these are roughly the two uh, groups of people who are the victims of encounter. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Thank you. So the, the the third case study in your book is Nepal, and we, you mentioned already a little bit about your work there. Um, and what's interesting, I think, in this case is the Nepalese Royal Army, and they're the focus of the chapter for the most part, and they've managed to escape any sort of international scrutiny for their actions for so long, even though they were capturing, torturing, and killing suspected Maoists during the, the ongoing civil war in the country. But how did they manage to evade this sort of international scrutiny for so long? Uh, it's a very interesting question, and uh, I, I hope there is an, I'll be able to provide an interesting answer as well. Uh, Nepal, you have to understand that uh, Nepal was not, I mean, compared to other South Asian countries, I mean, apart apart from Bhutan, Nepal was relatively uh, demilitarized or not not militarized as much as, you know, Pakistan or or Bangladesh or India or Sri Lanka. Uh, And and in the beginning of the civil war, the Nepalese army or the Nepalese police were not really even uh, prepared to deal with the insurgency. Uh, and, and that changed after the whole conflict was sort of internationalized as part of the global war on terror. And you remember George uh, W. Bush and Tony Blair uh, declaring the war on terror and all that. Uh, so they basically joined the whole thing and, and said, well, the the Nepalese Mavis are actually... Uh, pretty much in the same league as Al-Qaeda and other, other terrorist organizations. So this is a problem of terrorism and we have to deal with this. And they put in tons of arms and ammunitions into the country, into the hands of Royal Nepalese Army. The British actually trained and equipped the Nepalese uh, intelligence agency. There is a very good book by Thomas Bell uh, called uh, Kathmandu. He, he, he describes that in detail there. Um, and and so in in that way, Nepal civil war was a very internationalized war, which was politically sponsored by three big players: number one, the United States; number two, um, the United Kingdom; and number three, uh, India, the the regional hegemon. And it was, I mean, it was because of these countries. Uh, human rights organizations or or the or monitoring bodies of the um, United Nations, like the uh, Office of the High Commissioner for Human Rights, I and mean, they could not actually even properly monitor uh, the the crimes committed by the Royal Nepalese Army, and uh, a very unfortunate. Uh, but that. that that's that was the reality of the war there. Mm-hmm. 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 Thank you. Um, your book is 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 shocking in, in many ways. I mean, there's the, the the sheer number of of cases of brutality and torture that you list are, are really shocking, and it, it's also very very surprising um, for the reader, especially me. I, I found that I didn't realize the sort of the sheer size and the brutality of the Pakistani military, I mean, and I knew it was a, a state that had a lot of you know, heavy involvement with the military in, in running of its affairs, but the, the sheer size really, really blew my mind. So, 
My question here is like, how did the military get so big and in what ways has it been involved in acts of state terror? Uh, well, Pakistan is uh, is a textbook case of what uh, Harold Laswell calls the garrison state, or what I call the national security state, and uh, that is a state or a part of the state which is dominated by the military, by the specialist on violence. And in 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 the case of Pakistan, uh, from the fifties. The military is actually trying to, and, and they, they are very successful in that. I mean, they have very successfully established their dominance uh, over everything. I mean, there is no corner of Pakistani society which uh, the military has not yet dominated. Uh, and and, and, and that's, that's the canvas we are, we are looking at. And uh, we, we, I mean, Maybe in the in the West and other places. I mean, if we look at mainstream media of Pakistan, it's mostly about, you know, the how Pakistan army is cracking down on uh, the Taliban, for example, and all that. I mean, those those are the um, important stories that that gets reported. Uh, but Pakistan is also. The Pakistan army is also involved in a very brutal war against the Balochis in Balochistan, which I call a new colony. Balochistan was never really part of uh, the British Raj. And Pakistan, after independence, went in and sort of colonized this whole new area. And the Balochis are fighting uh, back for, for, for their independence from the state. And we also have a problem with Pakistan cracking down on dissent. Of like, uh, I mean, one of one of the uh, authors of the publishing house, uh, which which published my book, also published a book by Salim Shahzad, and uh, he was a journalist who was uh, investigating Al Qaeda and its uh, ties with Pakistan Army and um, ISI, the intelligence agencies. And uh, he, he, was, he was picked up from the streets of Islamabad uh, by ISI and brutally tortured to death. I mean, it, it was inhuman. And uh, the Americans, for example, they knew about it. They, they told the New York Times about it. And uh, what, what they did not admit is it, it was sort of American dollars that, that, uh, in, that, that helped build... Uh, Help Pakistan to build this machinery of torture and illegal dis- detention and everything. So the the Pakistani military basically started out uh, trying to uh, ensure its dominance uh, in the Pakistani society in in the in the Pakistani state. And now I think they are the only political actor. Uh, who are capable of, you know, sort of uh, having any kind of meaningful uh, uh, influence over how, how what, what happens there. Mm-hmm. Thank you. So now let's shift to the the final case to in your book before we'll move on to talking about some of the more sort of bigger issues that come out of this. And, and the final case study is Sri Lanka. And I think many of us know of the, the horrors of this long-running civil war, which, which came to an end a few years ago, and especially its, its, its bloody end. But again, what your 
book brings out is sort of these internal dynamics, what was going on, especially what was involved with the silencing of internal dissent. Could you please tell us a little bit about this? Uh, well, any dirty war, and Sri Lanka's was it was one of the ugliest wars we have uh, seen in recent years, and um, it, it was a, a it was an ethnic conflict. Uh, now, the Sri Lankan war effort. One of the key elements of that was the dehumanization of the Tamils, the dehumanization of the LTTE, the rebel group. And it was very important internally and internationally to sort of present this group as like murderous, death cult and sexually deviant and everything. If you, if you, if you look at the uh, coverage of uh, the war in Sri Lankan media, for example, for, from that time, it was like, I mean, these were monsters who do not uh, deserve any kind of humane treatment. Uh, you can, you could just, you, you should just kill them and all that. I mean, these were crazy people and uh, use of child soldiers and everything. So that was the mainstream dominant narrative of the war, and uh, that that's when it becomes a problem whenever a Tamil or whenever a Sinhala journalist basically uh, presents a dissenting view. It, it challenges the whole uh, mainstream narrative of the war and it becomes really crucial for the, for, the, for, for the specialist on violence to take care of that kind of dissenters. So the journalists or the intellectuals who were... Uh, uh, who were challenging the state and who were saying, no, you cannot just go and uh, torture people. You cannot just go and abduct people and then just kill them and, and bury them on, or, or cremate them secretly. Uh, or you cannot use uh, chemical weapons against uh, the Tamils, whoever that are, uh, whoever the LTT you know, like groups are and all that. Uh, you, 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 you have to obey the laws of war and, and, and obey the human rights laws and everything. So these dissenters, I mean, are, I think, I mean, these dissenters were the most dangerous elements in the eyes of the Sri Lankan national security state. And they had to be taken care of. So we have uh, the case of Pragit Aknaligoda, and he's, he's still missing. Uh, we have other journalists who have uh, died, who have been tortured to death. I mean, it's brutal, brutal torture and uh, brutal deaths uh, just just because of their dissenting views. <laughs> Thank you. So let's now start to speak a bit about some of the themes which, which have emerged from, from these four case studies. I was wondering if you think there's something particularly post-colonial about the way that state violence has emerged in South Asia. Oh, I can answer that with two words, Franz Fanon, and then <laughs> I'll, 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 I'll need some more words to, um, I mean, sort of justify my answer. So if you allow me, I'd like to quote from Fanon, which, I mean, I have quoted in, in, in uh, my book also. Uh, the colonial world is a world cut in two. The dividing line, 
the frontiers are shown by barracks and police station. In the colonies, it is the policeman and the soldier who are the official instituted go-betweens, the spokesman of the settler and his rule of oppression. In the post-colonial state, where the rule is that the greatest wealth is surrounded by the greatest poverty, the army and the police constitute the pillars of the regime. An army and a police force, another rule which must not be forgotten, which are advised by, uh, by foreign experts. The strength of the police force and the power of the army are proportionate to the stagnation in which the rest of the nation is sunk. This, I think, I mean, when we read Fanon, we usually uh, talk about violence and uh, colonial exploitation and colonial violence. Uh, but this, I think, was prophetic uh, in, in a way. I mean, he, he described the post-colonial state so perfectly, so accurately. And my book, in a way, is sort of um, an attempt to show how this description of the post-colonial state, this, this divide uh, between the colonial world and, 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 and the colonized world, uh, which is dominated by the specialist on violence, is is is, is very accurate description of, of state terror in South Asia. And uh, so that's, I mean, I'm from, from the, from the uh, I mean, if I'm talking about post-colonial studies, I mean, I often say to people who listen to me that uh, if, if you want to understand the white man, uh, read Edward Said or, I, I don't know, Spivak. And, but if you want to understand the black man or the brown man, you have to read Fanon. And this is my attempt of reading Fanon in South Asia. Anyway, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah, I think Fanon. I mean, you he quotes him actually in the introduction, and he's his uh, yeah. The ghost of Fanon definitely runs strongly throughout uh, throughout all of the chapters. Um, you, you know what's 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 really interesting? I think is is how these specialists on violence. I mean, how they're perceived, you know, locally because they're not like demon figures, are they? Could you tell us a little bit about about the way they're perceived in the popular press and elsewhere? Well, uh, there, 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 is a, there is a very uh, interesting book, The Writings of Azad, and, and that's uh, the book collects the writings of uh, Chirukuri Rajkumar, who was the spokesperson of the Communist Party of India, uh, the Maoist faction. And uh, he, he, was, he was executed uh, during an encounter. Uh, and, and he wrote about the uniformed guns, and these uniformed goons are uh, actually the, the specialists, as the, the police officers and military commanders and so on. So these people are, these uniformed goons are actually hailed as the heroes and saviors of, of the state, of the society. I mean, everywhere in South Asia, you'll see the mainstream press and, and the general public uh, looks at these people as heroes who are uh, trying to save everyone from these monsters who have certainly um, uh, 
trying trying to destroy the state and trying to destroy the society so these people are usually uh worshipped i'll say i mean you have i mean there there are rituals in in all the countries in south asia you have i mean every year during independence day or uh, republic day or whatever you'll have um, uh military parades in the capital and the prime minister will go to this uh, statue or monument or whatever and will will uh, lay a wreath in front of a statue and and then do a salute and stuff like that so th- these are these are these are really well choreographed rituals uh, designed to make sure that these people uh, these uniform goons who ex- Whose, whose main duty is uh, abducting, torturing, and executing people are uh, seen by the general public as sort of father figures, sort of the saviors of the of the republic or or, or the state. Thanks. Now we've spoken a bit about um, different case studies, but what comes out very strongly in on all of the chapters, and you have a chapter focused on it towards the end of the book, is that actually there's, there's a strong international dimension um, to these sort of acts of state terror. Could you please um, reflect a little bit on this? Uh, as, I, as I have tried to argue that no country in the third world or, or in the global south, I mean, can or will wage and win a dirty war without the active blessing and sponsorship of one of the global or regional hegemons. So these hegemons, I mean, for example, we have the United States, we have China, we have Russia, we have um, UK and France. Um, At the regional level, we have India. If we look at, I mean, I mean, if I if I briefly go outside South Asia, we have in. Uh, if we look at the case of Syria, for example, because it's so current, I mean, we have uh, Saudi Arabia, Iran, then Russia, and everyone there. Uh, so my my thesis here is that no campaign of state terror is possible without this sort of international sponsorship. And international sponsorship comes in different forms. I mean, number one, you will have political sponsorship. You will, uh, for example, China will uh, defend uh, Sri Lankan atrocities uh, at the United Nations Security Council, just like uh, United States uh, defends Israeli actions at the United Nations. Uh, then in, number two is uh, the um, flow of technologies and tools of terror from uh, these countries, from, from these core sponsoring countries to the to the client countries. Uh, so we'll we'll have arms transfer. We'll have military conferences where everyone will come together and and they will talk about you know how best to do special operations, which which is in euphemism for how, to, how, how best to abduct uh, and torture and kill people. Uh, so the, 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 that, that, that's sort of like the international dimension of it. And uh, I don't think, I mean, this is what I propose. I don't think that 
without this kind of international networking, without this kind of international system, uh, state terror is not really sustainable uh, in South Asia and, and elsewhere. Mm-hmm. Well, I think you make this argument very, very, very strongly in the book. Um, as is often the case when I'm doing these podcasts, um, I ask questions of certain things that interest me. So I was wondering if there's anything that I've skipped over in your book that you'd like to highlight for the listeners. Uh, well, I mean, really good questions. I hope I have done justice to them. Uh, I, I'd just like to take this opportunity to uh, alert your listeners uh, to the notes section of the book because I have uh, included lots of sources. I have tried to also suggest uh, material for further reading under the country chapters and the, and the theoretical chapters. So I hope... Um, uh, People who are interested in South Asia will find the book uh, useful. Uh, and also, uh, the book is available on Just Store, so people can go and check and maybe ask their libraries to, to uh, buy a copy or something so that they can have easier access. Uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Wonderful. Thank you. So this book has just come out very, very recently. So um, do you have any future plans for writing or other projects? Uh, right now, I'm working on relaunching Independent World Report, as I mentioned. I mean, we are relaunching it as a uh, monthly newspaper. And uh, there, uh, I plan to write a series on what we sort of touched upon, the international system of, of, of state terror. Uh, so I'll be writing a series on uh, this. Uh, I'll be covering Israel, the arms trade, then, then China, then the United States, and uh, the Security Council, lots of things. Uh, and uh, maybe in the very distant future, uh, I, I am uh, thinking of writing a second book, if any publisher will be interested, and that, that will be about uh, police violence and police brutality or, or, or the politics of um, police brutality globally. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You both sound like both very interesting and, and very important projects. Uh, I'd just like to say to the, the listeners at home, as I, as I was telling you before we started to speak, it's, a, it's an extremely, extremely powerful uh, book. It's at times quite difficult to read simply because of the, the, the graphic violence, but at the same time, is it's, um, yeah, it's, a, I think, a profoundly important book in the way that it brings together all these different, uh, all these different countries, and you can start to see sort of common logics of, of state violence across the books. And this, in this way, it makes it a real, yeah, a really important and, and powerful book. So I'd like to recommend it to the listeners at home. And uh, the only thing I have still to do is to thank you for coming on the podcast and thank you for talking about uh, your book today. Uh, thank you very much, and uh, I'm I'm quite humbled by your uh, feedback. Very very positive feedback on that. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening to the New Books in South Asian Studies podcast. I've been your host, Ian Cook, and today we've been talking about Jalad by Tasneem Cahill. I hope you enjoyed our conversation. I hope you're going to go check out the book yourself, and I hope you tune in again next time. Ta-ra!